From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA. This is Catholic Military Life, the only official podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. And for this edition, it's my honor to have as my guest, Kitty Eisenbeel. Kitty, welcome. Thank you so much, Taylor. And the topic of our podcast is a very serious matter, the Archdiocesan Review Board, uh, which uh, monitors uh, cases, reports of alleged abuse among um, clerics within the Archdiocese for the military services. And Kitty, you've just been appointed to this board. Yeah, like literally a week ago. (laughs) And today, uh, which is, uh, we're recording this on November 18th of Friday, will be your first meeting. Very first meeting, so literally my first rodeo. Well, first of all, uh, tell me, how did you um, get invited to join the board? Uh, So I have known um, Elizabeth uh, for some Tomlin for some time now, for a few years. We've served on the Military Council of Catholic Women. Uh, for quite some time, met her in 2018 when I lived, when we were stationed overseas, and I went to a retreat and met her there. Um, so over the years, I've known her, and in more recent years, she has come to know me in my um, capacity as a licensed marriage and family therapist and independent mental health practitioner. And in she called me uh, early last week to say, you know, they had a board position open and. She thought that with my background and my work with military, my work uh, in the archdiocese, as well as with military members, that I would be a good candidate to fill that position. And it's actually something that I was, um, it sounds weird to say I'm really excited to do because it is such a serious matter, but definitely something that's been on my heart for a long time is working with people who come from um, a background of trauma, a background of um, hurting both on both sides when, when we're talking about what were sexual abuse allegations and also having had um, any sexual trauma as well. Being able to serve people on both sides of that has been a, a huge piece of what my work is and what my heart is drawn to as well. So yeah, I was really excited that it came my way and I was happy to accept the nomination. And you're referring, of course, to uh, Elizabeth Tomlin, yes. who is the general counsel yes. here at the Archdiocese for the Military Services. And um, Elizabeth Tomlin uh, is among those uh, who attend the uh, regular uh, review board meetings, her along with our vicar general, uh, Monsignor Jeffrey Lively, and of course, Archbishop Timothy Brolio. And you're among the six members yes. who make up the board, most of whom are lay, lay people. Exactly. Uh, and you have a background in uh, licensed therapy, family uh, therapy? Yep. So my, my background is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Uh, come from uh, University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minneapolis, went to school there and cut my teeth in becoming a therapist in the just down and dirty parts of Las Vegas, Nevada, which was our first duty station in the Air Force and uh, worked with a significant portion of my clients had to do with like sexual trauma, um, dissociative identity disorder because of sexual trauma. Uh, childhood all the way up to adulthood so it was a lot of a lot of really severe stuff going on that I was working with um, and it was a joy never never thought it'd be something I would really love doing but um, trauma work has always been a passion well since then has been my passion and something I 
I do a lot of. Um, so I've been doing that since 2009 was when I started practicing. And uh, yeah, nonstop since. And you mentioned the Air Force. Are you in the Air Force? So my husband is active duty. He is a uh, priory and now serves as a major. Um, and we are actually on our way out. We are headed towards retirement now in just about the next six months. So we're very excited for the next next chapter. And where do you live now? We are stationed at Offutt Air Force Base. So we're in the Omaha area. Absolutely love it. It's a wonderful community. The Catholic community there is vibrant. And so we've had just wonderful opportunity to live um, in beaut- you know, beautiful churches, uh, beautiful community, just a wonderful experience, especially when we were stationed at uh, Lake and Heath in England before then, where it's really difficult to live your faith out in, um, in England. So moving to a place where it's, it's just very welcoming and uh, celebrated to live faithfully has been just a joy for us. And you started your um, family um, therapy practice at Nellis Air Force Base. In so Las, yeah, Las I started off my internship to become licensed when we got to Las Vegas right after graduating from St. Thomas. And uh, yeah, when you are a newly, not even licensed, when you're a new practitioner, you, you say, give me whatever, I will take whatever, you're not making any money, you know, you, you have to do whatever you can to get your supervision done and get your hours completed. So I was, I was seeing clients uh, right off of Fremont Street, right off of uh, behind the stratosphere, which is some of the worst places, um, working with gang members, uh, working with, like I said, sexual abuse victims, um, just kind of getting a whole gamut of, of um, crises going on in front of me and doing in-home therapy. So the stuff I saw uh, coming in and out of people's houses was also pretty incredible. And I should uh, say here that uh, any allegation of sexual abuse of a minor by any cleric, employee, or volunteer serving in the Archdiocese for the military services should be reported immediately uh, to the Victim Assistance Coordinator. And the Victim Assistance Coordinator is Dr. Eileen Dombo. Uh, who is a Ph.D. and a licensed social worker. She can be reached at 202-681-5069 or vac at org. You have experienced dealing with victims mm-hmm. of sexual abuse. This is, has been a huge issue for the church for yes. at least the past 20 years. Oh, the yes. church has grappled with and is trying to eliminate completely. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about the trauma victims suffer after having been sexually abused. So uh, trauma uh, is something, you know, when you have a distressing traumatic event occur, um, when we look at how the brain is working after that, it's a lot of uh, walls that are going up. The whole idea is how do you protect yourself? And it's really hard to figure it out from person to person because everybody's trauma response looks different. Um, when I go into therapy with people, I'll, I'll hear a lot of the same symptoms, but as I talk to them, I find out their trauma responses are tailored very specifically to the individual. Um, and so walls get put up, communication styles uh, are, are very different and very difficult. There's a lot of uh, withdrawing and um, the development of relationships 
looks very tenuous. There's so much tension. The attachment styles can be very different. Um, Detachment styles? Attachment styles. So the way they attach themselves um, or the way they form relationships and attach themselves. So um, with, with one person who's experienced sexual trauma, they might attach like very tightly to a person anxious attachment where they're they're constantly trying to meet the needs of the other person to gaining approval from that person you know whereas somebody else might be completely distant never make really solid attachments now we're talking about relationships between the victim and other people not the abuser not the abuser um, but they're definitely formed by the fact that there is usually some sort of relationship in any capacity with the abuser because most most um, abuse occurs within someone a relationship that's already there it's not typically a stranger situation it's typically family member friend of the family that sort of thing that's studies show that that's usually what's going on and so there is a relationship that's there between a victim and an abuser and so future development of relationships is impacted so the victim usually already has a relationship with the abuser. Yeah, that's typically what's going on when these sort of things happen. And that complicates things. Absolutely. And especially when you think about um, how much our relationships form our the health in our brain, like how our brain is formed around relationships. Uh, some uh, neuroscience studies that have been done in the last decade or so have shown how important relationships are, in-person relationships, community, um, to the extent of um, building a good relationship with someone is like has the equivalence of, of uh, gaining $70,000 a year in annual income. Um, losing a relationship like through divorce or um, like a severe traumatic cutoff in a relationship is like losing $90,000 a year in annual income. Um, the ending or traumatic ending of a, a friendship, of a significant relationship, has the same emotional pain that your body enters in like the breaking of a bone. It's like you broke your leg. That's how your brain processes it. So you can see how when there is a very traumatic, abusive relationship, your brain is taking that in in such a way that it, it's going to develop a lot of um, self-protection, like a lot of defense mechanisms that go with it because it affects us mentally so much. It sounds like a lot of confusion, too. Absolutely. Cognitive dissonance, I mm-hmm. suppose you would call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so working through that is the task at hand for the victim. Yes, absolutely. And uh, if it's an authority figure, like a teacher or a, a cleric, mm-hmm. I would. how does that affect the, the interaction? We look at ways in which um, trust is built, right? You know, the ability to trust future people or how you view future people in your life. Um, One thing that I've noticed in doing trauma work, so the type of trauma work I do is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. A lot of people know it as EMDR, as well as accelerated resolution therapy or ART. Uh, We are looking at how your brain is processing that information And when a traumatic event occurs in someone's life, the brain will attempt to process that information at that age in that moment. And so as I'm doing work with clients and we're trying to find touchstone events, trying to find the sources so we can reprocess them, I'll often ask them in that moment, how old do you feel? And nine times out of 10, it's a, I feel 15. 
I feel 12. I feel eight. Like all of a sudden the emotion of a small child comes out in them. And it's at that moment I can pinpoint what happened to you at that age because their brain has locked in their emotional response at that moment. And now they will re-experience that moment over and over again at that age. And then until we're able to process that through, they're not able to build adult trusting relationships. They're continuing to learn to trust people from the age of the traumatic experience, which of course, very different from how adults trust each other, how adults view peers rather than as people in power. Sure, and a, a minor would obviously not be able to process uh, an abuse situation as well as an adult would. Doesn't have enough life experience really, right? A minor. They're gonna process it differently. I see. Yeah, so. And, and in some cases you're saying they're stuck at that age where they were, whether they had skill or not, that's where they're at that's, emotionally. Yes, and especially depending, I would say depending on the level of distress involved in the specific situation, um, whether they will process it at all, um, or it's just gonna be stuck, sitting right beneath the surface, waiting to just get poked over and over again. And so no matter the situation, whether they're having a pleasant conversation with a friend and they suddenly hear a word or smell a smell, um, that memory gets poked and the emotion just comes up and suddenly they're angry, um, they're distressed, they wanna run away, they need to escape, um, they're, they wanna hide, they shut down. They re relive the horror. They relive it, yeah. And sometimes they're completely unaware of what's going on in their body, what's happening, why do I feel this way? Why do I suddenly have these emotional experiences? And, and that's where when you are working through that trauma, whether as a child or as an adult, um, when you're working with a professional through it, you're able to go back and find those scenarios and process them through. You gotta help your brain um, get the work done. I'm talking to Kitty Eisenbeel, the newest member of the Archdiocesan Review Board, the six-member board in charge of uh, monitoring and um, receiving any complaints of uh, abuse of minors by uh, a cleric or staff member or volunteer for the Archdiocese for the Military Services. Uh, and I should say anyone who has such a complaint should contact the Victim Assistance Coordinator that's Dr. Eileen Dombo, uh, and her uh, number is 202-681-5069, or email vac at millarch.org. So let's talk about the healing when a case is found to, you know, to have happened and, uh, you know, credible, credible accusation made, you're dealing with a victim. Mm -hmm. Where is the healing? How does the healing come about? So um, in my role as a therapist, where we begin the healing work uh, in therapy, right now my favorite method is using ART, the Accelerated Resolution Therapy, and the key phrase that we use is um, uh, keep, the, keep the facts, lose the pain, right? And the idea is that you're not gonna lose your memory. You're, this has happened, right? The, kind of the acceptance of something has happened, and it was terrible and it was distressing, and we need to acknowledge that it happened. That doesn't mean we need to allow it to affect our life every single day, every single moment. And so when you do reprocessing, you're allowing your brain to process through the facts, keep the facts, lose the pain, 
process through the facts, setting the emotional um, component aside so that you can work through that. And so you look back on it, um, clients will, will do a 45 minute to an hour session and they'll be able to work through it in one session. I've seen some remarkable, remarkable things. Um, and they get done and suddenly we go back to the initial memory and they're just like, it just doesn't bother me anymore. I know that it happened to me. I know that it was terrible, absolutely terrible. But I don't feel the need to cry. I don't feel anger about it anymore. Um, and they're able to, uh, suddenly they're able to talk about it. Like it's, they're able to have conversation and it doesn't like rise up in them. How long does that process usually take? So depending on the type of therapy, this is what I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, like I am gonna push for people to do uh, some sort of trauma therapy, EMDR, ART, uh, part psychology is another one that I utilize. Um, anything that uses the, the, we call it bilateral stimulation, that's the eye movement that we use, um, can take, EMDR takes anywhere from one to four sessions, maybe some more um, for a particular event, ART, one maybe two sessions depending on um, how how much detail the client needs to work through the thing I love about it is there's no talking they they don't have to talk about it they don't have to bring it all up they don't it's not exposure therapy it's not um, reliving it and it's not talk therapy it's processing therapy so you are just bringing up the event on your own and immediately reprocessing it. So when people come in and they're afraid, they're, they're so afraid and this is where we encourage people to be able to come forward and talk about these things because, and, and there's so much fear involved in it because of the relationship, because of the power that was there in the first place that and that trust that's been completely damaged and desecrated. So they have this fear coming in and I often have to work with them first to let them know that you're going to experience this for about 30 to 45 seconds. And after that, you're going to be processing like a champ. It's going to go so quickly. And you won't have to feel this way ever again. Never again. But that fear often prevents them. So it doesn't matter if you start therapy a day after the trauma occurs or 20 years after trauma occurs. You're able to start processing in that moment that you come. Tell me more about this eye movement. How do you monitor the eye yeah. movements and what does the movement of the eyes tell you? Okay, so I call it my hippie voodoo magic because <laughs> people get started on it and when they're done, they're like, what did you do to me? And I'm like, I didn't do anything. All I did was uh, I, I moved my hand or I have a light bar that'll, that people will use and uh, you just let your brain do the work. So. Um, the best way that I've uh, learned to describe it to clients has been, you know, when you're sleeping at night and you go through a REM cycle of sleep, the rapid eye movement cycle of your sleep, that is the part of your sleep where your brain is processing the day's events. Uh, it's usually dream sleep as well, where you, where you have your dreams is during your REM cycle. Well, what's happening when you have a distressing event is your brain is unable to process in uh, an efficient or effective way during your REM. And after about three months of not being able to process, it just clumps everything together and kind of just tosses it aside. And so it's not processed at all. So when you're doing therapy in EMDR or ART, um, we activate your brain by using bilateral simulation. And that 
stimulation is either a hand moving back and forth in front of your eyes and you just move your eyes, uh, a light bar, which I like using because I have a shoulder that clicks, and so <laughs> it can be very distracting. Um, also get a little tired after a while. You have a shoulder that clicks? Yeah, it just goes click, click, click oh. as, as I'm moving my hand back and forth, my gotcha. joints, you know. That's the I rota- I got a rotator cuff. I'm, I have a lot of clicking going on. Yeah, can you imagine doing that? Eight <laughs> okay. clients, click, click, click. Um, so I have a light bar uh, that's very handy as well, and you control the speed of it. Um, people sometimes get really dizzy or they, they get nausea or um, they have vertigo or something. And so they use uh, theratappers or they're just handheld. They hold them in their hand and they vibrate back and forth. Or some people will wear headphones and it's a tone that goes from ear to ear. And the whole idea is just both sides of your brain. We're just activating it both ways. Um, And the beauty of it is it's all like, all explained neurologically, right? All we're doing is we're activating the sympathetic nervous system. We're turning that on, it pushes back uh, the emotion center of your brain, setting it aside so that you can bring up these memories without the amygdala dosing your brain in, in emotion. And it allows you to process it through um, like you, like you would during your REM cycle of sleep. Now, do you do this while the victim is talking about the incident, or is this just something that the victim sits there speechless, speechlessly, if there's such a word, <laughs> and just allows you to measure the eye movement? Uh, so, as I do it, it's it's by count. Usually, you do the eye movement just in an amount of time, right, to allow a certain amount of processing to occur, and I have them bring up. Uh, a specific memory, we'll find a memory, like I call it a touchstone memory. So we we do what's called a float back to help them go from uh, what you're feeling in your body, the emotion, where do you feel that in your body, the sensations, and allow your brain, allow your mind to float back to when have I felt this before? When have I felt it before? And you go back and back until, if we can, to a point where it's like, I can't go back any further, this is the first time. And once we get there, then we take that memory and we start, we have a script. You follow the script pretty closely, it's really helpful. Um, we follow the script and we just start the processing. And it's just a matter of, I just move my hand and I say, bring up that memory. Maybe there's a negative cognition that goes with it, a belief about yourself, like I wasn't good enough, or uh, nobody would ever choose me, or um, I should have been bad. I should have been better. You know, There might be a negative belief about the self and so we bring that together and we find out how distressed they are by this memory. And then we start the eye movements as they, all they do is think about it. I don't have to ask them anything. It's silent, we're silent that whole time. And so what things do you look for in the eye movement that? Uh, just their eyes moving back and forth, that's it. And I just make sure their eyes are moving back and forth, that's my job. And what information do you get from that eye movement? Uh, so all I know is that if their eyes are moving back and forth, they're engaging that sympathetic nervous system, which means their brain is processing the facts, right? And then when they get done, if I'm doing EMDR, um, all I say is, what do you notice? And some people will launch into a, this memory came up, this thought came up, this feeling in my body happened. Um, They start to notice too, what things start to come up when they have specific emotions. So if they have anxiety, I've had clients who are like, my feet, like I feel the tingling in my feet and then we will process and it'll go away. Um, I've had clients who've had like traumatic car accidents. Um, they will tell me that they're experiencing the movements of the, like the pains in their body of the car accident um, as they're processing and then the pains go away as they process it out. 
and it's done. Like they have, it's almost like the memory, their body remembers it. And for, I love this book so much. So if anyone uh, needs a good book about how your body holds trauma, there's uh, the book is called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's a fabulous book on how when we experience any trauma or distressing events, especially when there's uh, physical or medical stuff involved, your body holds on to that. It keeps memory of it. And so there have been people who experience bruising at, on the anniversary date of a major accident, um, but your body kind of relives it. Uh, it'll hold the tension. If you're in a car accident, it holds the tension of the stress of that car accident in the location of an injury. And so a lot of times as you're doing reprocessing, the body starts to reflect it by aches and pains coming out, um, nerves coming out in certain areas. And the pre the reprocessing allows you to get rid of it? Yeah. So I've had people who have pain that's been going on and on and on, and we do a reprocessing and the pain disappears because it's been the trauma of the injury that has had their body hold on to the pain. And reprocessing the trauma allows their body to release the pain. I'm talking to Kitty Eisenbeel, who is the newest member of the six-member Archdiocesan Review Board, which uh, monitors and uh, keeps track of and uh, acts on uh, cases of alleged abuse of minors. This is an issue that Archbishop Timothy Broglio takes very seriously. Uh, the uh, Archdiocese have, has a... Uh, a uh, very strict policy on uh, sexual misconduct by uh, any cleric or staff or volunteer here at the Archdiocese for the military services. Uh, the, the policy uh, uh, recognizes, among other things, that uh, uh, abuse of a minor is both a grave sin and a crime. And that kind of misconduct violates human dignity, ministerial commitment, and the mission of the church. Um, in the few minutes we have left, Kitty, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, wow, you have so much background in uh, your profession, and you bring all that to the board. Um, and how is it that uh, such a grave sin, a, a crime that's taken place uh, repeatedly uh, in the church in years past, uh, how is it that you find that work rewarding? It's a it's a difficult thing to explain to people when you work in an area that it seems so horrible, right? It is horrifying. And um, I won't say that there isn't so much pain that goes into it. Um, um, I'm not a typically like very outwardly emotional person, but there have been there have been multiple occasions with clients where they come in and they will share this story with me of their abuse like this. It's a horrible story. It's horrifying. It's you just feel so much grief for them, so much hurt for them, and uh, either in the session I'm working really hard not to allow the emotion to come up in me as they're working through it, um, or afterwards I just have to take a moment. And uh, I've had moments where I just like stop and uh, cry in my office for just a couple minutes, uh, and then I'm back at the work. Um, but it's so rewarding because I see people coming and they're so they have this pain and somebody has caused this pain and they've had no control over it. It wasn't their fault. They didn't do anything wrong. And yet they have been so gravely affected by this, their family. And, and not only that, but the trauma they experience is now part of their DNA and how they 
respond to it it's part of their dna and this is what's getting passed on to their future generations and the rewarding piece of it is i get to sit with them in that trauma and help them see what their life can be like the rewarding aspect of their life when they are able to work through it and them working through it then paves the path for future generations to work through it literally written into their dna they also get to rewrite it in how they respond to this trauma and i would imagine some of them resort to self-blame they blame themselves for for what happened even though it had nothing to do with that's part of the negative cognition that we often have to bring up is the the blame of themselves that self-blame they have this negative cognition of it was my fault i did something wrong or i wasn't good enough and it's important to bring in that positive cognition as they're doing treatment of no you you have dignity you have inherent dignity and just because somebody else came in and tried to rob that of you they can never take that from you and as somebody is coming in for treatment or you see somebody you meet anyone that you hear this story of it's really important that they are reminded of their dignity they are reminded that your worth is not in the traumas that occurred to you your worth is in the fact that you you are a chosen son of god a chosen daughter of god you it is inherent in the fact that you were simply created and nobody here can take that from you and that's the the jumping point we have to go with in order to help people immediately let's get on this trauma but you can't force them that's a big piece it's more about walking with them and helping them to see this in themselves and helping lead them towards that treatment accompaniment exactly accompaniment I've been talking to Kitty Eisenbeel, the newest member of the six-member Archdiocesan Review Board, which monitors and uh, acts on uh, cases of alleged uh, abuse. Uh, Kitty, thank you so much for talking to me. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me.